Gosh, it's really good to be back with you this week. Uh, as Laura alluded to, I was, I was gone last week. I was able to go to Latin America with the Exodus Road. And uh, for me, the highlight of that trip was meeting the team down there that does this work. It's uh, these five Latin men, and it's not a requirement to, to work for the Exodus Road, but they happen to all be believers in just uh, some of the sweetest, most precious men you will ever meet. Um, and yet they, they go into places that are too dangerous for us gringos to even get out of the car. I mean, it's a, like it's just really difficult places. And on every corner, you'll see something that breaks your heart. And these guys, they just, they love Jesus and they rescue boys and girls. And it's, I'm so excited that we're going to partner with them uh, this year with the Christmas offering. They are the real deal. I just I was blown away by them. So, but it's, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with you. I missed you all last week. Um, we have been looking at Mark's gospel for about three months now, and today we're going to finish up this series, or we're going to press pause on this series, because uh, next Sunday is the beginning of Advent, and so we're going to be doing Christmas stuff for the next month, as is appropriate, but we're going to come back to this in a little bit. But right now, we're going to end uh, like t- with this moment that Mark has been building toward for eight chapters. Remember, Mark, he's not writing as like a journalist just recording what happened to Jesus. He's not writing as a historian. He is writing for one reason. He really wants you to believe in Jesus. He wants to mess with your life. That's kind of what he's about here. He, he, he's hoping that after you read his story, and when you get to this moment and we press into what Jesus is saying, that your life will never be the same because you believe in him. He's meddling, right? He is being subversive. He is agitating. What he's trying to subvert in us is our normal life. He's trying to replace it with something uh, that reflects who Jesus is and why he came. So today we're going to finally get to this point, like a hinge moment in his gospel, where Jesus asked these disciples this simple question, who do you say that I am? And I think he wants to ask us this same sort of question. I'm going to reframe it slightly um, in a way that might connect a little bit more with us. I want to ask the same sort of question, but I want to ask it this way. What would your life look like if Jesus really is who he said he was? What would your life look like if Jesus really is who he said he was, if everything was true? Now, I've been in church for a while, um, and I, I've heard questions like that from time to time in church. And, you know, the truth about questions like that is sometimes, it, like, it just... The net effect is it just makes you feel like a failure spiritually, right? We preachers love to make people feel bad about their spiritual life. And um, I remember, like, I was in college, and I heard this uh, preacher who said, if someone observed your life, that's how he talked, if someone observed your life for a week, and you weren't able to use words, would there be any evidence that you're a Christian? And I was like, well, now I'm going to say no, because I feel like that's what you want me to say. I'm not sure exactly what he was getting at, but I heard that question, and I'm like, oh, I just, I feel horrible about what I'm doing spiritually. Um, sometimes these questions can be, feel condemning or manipulative. I don't think that's what Mark is doing when he brings this question to us, who do you say I am? I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I, that certainly is not what I'm trying to do. But that, those questions are not intended to make us feel bad about our spiritual lives. I think that this sort of a question is actually about freeing us. It's about freeing us from something. 
Do you know what I believe about you? Uh, you may not even believe this about yourself, but I believe this about you, that you, just like me, deep in your heart of hearts, you long to step into the sort of life that Jesus has called us to. And I may be wrong, but I believe that about you. I don't believe that you're a slacker. I don't believe you're lazy. I don't believe that you are secretly trying to acknowledge Jesus with your lips and walk out those doors and deny him by your lifestyle. I don't believe that you want to be a hypocrite. I believe that you, just like me, would love to live your life as if Jesus really is who he said he is. But sometimes fear gets the best of you, just like it does for me. Sometimes distraction gets the best of you, just like it does for me. Sometimes bitterness creeps into your heart, and that becomes the motivating factor. Sometimes, I don't know if we're allowed to say this in church, but I'll say it. Sometimes, like, just sin is really appealing sometimes. Can we say that? Like, sometimes it's just appealing, and it's like, well, I want to do that. But I think this question, what would your life look like if Jesus is who he says he is, it has the power maybe to free us from some of that stuff. And I think that's why Jesus asked his disciples a question like this, and this is why I want to ask this question today, because if Jesus really is who he said he is, then everything has changed. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then our lives will never be the same. How could they? And what I trust about you is you want to believe that as much as I do. So what I thought we'd do today is we'll just look at three quick snapshots in Mark that are really the hinge moment for this account that Mark is writing. The first half of Mark kind of builds to this moment, and then uh, we'll dive into the second half in the new year. Um, It's this moment, though, where Jesus finally begins to reveal the last 10% of why he came to his followers. And you see this, that they kind of want to believe it, but they wrestle with it. And I just thought we'd wrestle along with them today and maybe we'd walk out of here a little bit freer to live as if Jesus really is who he said he is. So turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to start with uh, what has to be, my opinion, has to be the weirdest miracle in the Bible. Like there's like a lot of weird miracles in the Bible, like axe heads floating, things like that. But this to me is the weirdest miracle in the Bible. Mark 8 verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Now, let's pause right there. Everything about this is weird, right? Everything about this is weird. I like, to, I, I like to wonder about this blind man. Like His friends are like, hey, we're going to take you to Jesus. It's going to be awesome. He's going to heal you. We think he has the power to do it. Let's go meet Jesus. And then he's like, hey, this is Jesus. They're telling him, this is Jesus. He's agreed to heal you. And then Jesus spits on him. And I wonder if there was like a moment where he's like, okay, very funny. This is not the real Jesus, right? You brought me to this guy and he's spitting on me. Ha, ha, ha. You've had a great laugh at my expense. But then Jesus touches him and he heals him. But like not totally, like he can see, but he can't totally see clearly. What he sees is kind of fuzzy. And I, I, you know, it's like Jesus was like, well, listen, guys, I was up late last night. I haven't had anything to eat yet today. Just give give me a second chance. I got it. And he does. He gives it a second try. Verse 25, once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open. 
His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. That's weird, right? I, obviously, the question is, why would he do, why did he have to touch him twice? Why did Jesus do it this way? You know, the short answer is nobody knows for sure. Um, like, Mark doesn't tell us. Here's why Jesus had to touch him twice. So there's nothing in the text that kind of reveals this. But there is this amazing theory that holds a lot of weight with me about this specific miracle. And it especially seems true when you read the next two passages that Mark says. Uh, now, Mark, we know, has been trying to teach us this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the sort of Messiah that everyone was expecting. That's real central to understanding the Gospel of Mark, that what people wanted Jesus Jesus to do and what Jesus was actually going to do were very different. And that's important to Mark because if Jesus is who he says he is, our lives are never going to be the same. It's really important that we understand who he actually is, not just who we wish he was. See, many people brought their biases, their expectations, the things that they selfishly kind of wanted in the world. They brought those to Jesus and were like, well, if you're the Messiah, you'll do this stuff. And I think that's still true right? I mean, we love the idea that God would send the Messiah and fix everything. But for most of us, just because we're human, our definition of fixing everything is very self-focused, and it has a lot to do with how we see the world. Um, we don't mean to, we're just human. So this blind guy shows up, and he couldn't see at all, and he meets Jesus, and he regained some sight, but it wasn't totally clear. It was fuzzy. His eyes misunderstood what he was looking at, and then Jesus does something, and it becomes clear. And the idea that holds a lot of weight with me is that Jesus did it that way to illustrate what was happening to him at this point in his ministry. People were starting to regain some sight. People were starting to see Jesus, and, and they, they were starting to consider, hey, maybe this guy really could be the Messiah, but it was still really fuzzy, and most people were looking at him through the lens of their self-focused desires. And this miracle is the start of a pivot for Jesus, right? He's been doing a lot of stuff, and he hasn't really clarified the real reason that he came. But this, from this point forward, that is what he's going to be about, is clarifying, this is why I've actually come. And he's going to start talking about the cross and what that means. And he talks a lot about that after this miracle. So no one knows for sure, but the idea is that this miracle is really a picture of these two halves of Jesus' ministry, where a lot of people were excited about him, but they didn't see him for who he was. And so he starts to clarify for them, let me tell you exactly what sort of Messiah that I am. And that especially seems to make sense when you look at the next two passages that Mark includes. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. I mean, this is the moment, right? We've been building to this for a few weeks. This who do you say I'm always asking is a question of vision. When you look at me, what do you see? That's what he's asking his disciples. And Peter steps in and he nails it, right? I mean, this is the answer. This is Peter's moment. And uh, he sees Jesus. You are the promised Messiah. I believe that about you. 
But remember the miracle, right? Peter sees him, but it's still a little fuzzy. So Jesus starts to make it clear. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. There's something wrong with what you're seeing. See, if Peter really believed that Jesus was the Messiah, it makes sense that he would go with his plan. It seems silly that you would rebuke the Messiah, the only Son of God, for telling you what he intends to do. But his vision is still fuzzy at this point. And so he doesn't really want to see what Jesus is about. And uh, instead, he's kind of bringing his self-focused desires to Jesus so that he would do those. And you know what? Jesus hates it when we do that. So Peter rebukes him. Jesus rebukes him right back. And then he's going to begin to clarify, let me tell you what it actually means to follow me, the Messiah that I am. But before we get to that, I I just want to pause for a second. Um, Like, could we just recognize like how painful this moment must have been for Jesus. I mean, I know like he's God and he's high above us and he's holy and all that sort of stuff. But he also was human. He also had some same human concerns that we have. And you think about Jesus, he had been waiting to tell someone about this part of his plan probably his entire life. He'd been the only one who knew And Peter confesses, you're the Messiah. And it's almost as like, Jesus is like, well, finally, okay, you're ready to hear the rest of the plan, the part about me suffering, the part about me dying and being risen from the dead. And he tells them, and they don't receive it. And I think we just need to recognize how tender this moment must have been for Jesus. Um, You know, the burden of being the sole person on earth who knows that he came to suffer and die. And he's been carrying that secret around from the beginning. And finally, he gets to include them. And it tells them this thing that nobody else knows. And he rebukes him for it. I mean, it makes me want to cry for poor Jesus. I mean, this must have been a really hard day. This was one of those days, I think, where he realized no one will be able to carry this burden with me. That was true of him. And I, just, I think we just need to recognize these human moments in the Bible because I, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but if you've ever felt like nobody knows what I'm carrying, nobody knows, and when I talk about it, nobody even wants to hear it, what I'm carrying inside, I think it's worth just recognizing Jesus has lived that moment a lot. You know, uh, he's been there. He, nobody wanted to hear the secret that he carried. This idea that the, the only way to usher in this kingdom that everyone was excited about was through his humiliation and suffering. Nobody wanted to hear that. And when he finally told his closest friends, they said, ah, just stop it. It's painful, right? It's lonely. Most people saw in Jesus what they wanted to see. Um, And despite the loneliness of that burden, he steps into it and he looks around and he says, well, let me clarify what it means to follow someone like me. Look at verse 34. 
Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So here's what Jesus says. Listen, if you believe I'm the Messiah, if you are actually wanting to follow me, then what that means is you deny yourself, all your wants and desires, you set that stuff aside, you take up your cross, which means literally that you are embracing this reality that you are dying, and he says you stop trying to save your life, you stop trying to maximize it, to improve it, to live your best life, to hang on to it, you just let go of all that stuff for Jesus and for the gospel, and if you do that, if you follow him in that sort of way, you'll find real life and you'll discover your soul. Jesus says, to follow a Messiah like me, like all I'm asking from you is everything. That's all, just everything. You know, sometimes it feels like this, but this is important to note. Following Jesus is not in any way about self-improvement, right? It is about death. That's how he describes it, death and rebirth, because if he is actually God, if he actually is, as Peter claimed, the Messiah sent from God, and he actually died, like, like brain dead, heart stopped, actually dead, and then he rose from the death, uh, and people actually saw him, like walking around on his earth, if, uh, if all of that stuff is actually true of him, then our life, as we know it, is over, and nothing else matters except him if all of that's true. And I think what Jesus is saying, especially to Peter, is listen, if you believe it, if you see me for who I am, then you'll be free to step into this sort of life that doesn't get fearful and pull away when you hear the truth. Back to our question. Um, what would your life look like if Jesus is who he says he is? Well, you know, I mean, Jesus' answer is that it would look in a way that he would describe as losing your life. That's what it would look like if we really believe this. And I would suggest this, that none of us should embrace that unless Jesus is, in fact, God come to earth, right? Because only then would there be something uh, that, that is worth it. Only then would there be something better than gaining the whole world. I mean, think about this claim of Jesus for a second. Like just, if, if we could just stipulate there is God, like if we stipulate that there is a God behind it all, right? A spiritual being behind everything, a being who created every inch of our universe, uh, but lives on this plane of existence, like really far removed away from ours. Like he's not even governed by the rules of space and time and all that sort of stuff. He's outside of all of our universe and he's so complex that he was able to order this universe perfectly so that it works. If we believe that there is a mind behind what we observe, and there's even a mind behind our mind who gives us the capacity to observe it and to marvel at existence and to marvel at the universe that we live in, it, if we believe that, it is hard to even conceive how far above us 
that being we call God is. And yet, if what Jesus said is true, if Jesus is who he said he is, that means that being who is so far above us, who needs nothing from you, who came, came to earth to get you, came to earth to make a way for you to know that he exists and to redeem every last part of you simply because that God didn't want to live without you. His love for us, his love for you made him choose suffering and death. If Jesus is actually that God, then I would submit to you that none of us could ever be more loved than that. And if it's true, then only then does it make perfect sense to give up 100% of our life and follow him in this way. See what I mean? Mark is messing with us. He's stirring something up. I I think he's asking us, hey, if you believe it, what are you going to do about it? That's what he's asking us. Because if it's true... I mean, the obvious response is to go all in following Jesus, right? I mean, of course, if it's true. Do you believe it? Um, And if you believe it, how do you do that? What does this look like to lose your life in the way Jesus is describing? Um, I want to clarify what that means because I think, uh, you know, I don't, there's not a lot of crosses laying around to pick up and carry it can sound a little bit esoteric. What, what is he talking about there? I think there's three things that aren't obvious at first, but are really important for us to understand about losing our life and following Jesus in this way. And in some ways, this is like a summary of what we've been preaching these last few months. Um, but here's what I think it means. First and foremost, if Jesus is actually God, then that means you are more loved than you could ever imagine. You're more loved than you could ever imagine. And losing your life means embracing your identity as the beloved of God, because that's what you are. And it starts there. You have nothing to prove. You don't have to feel insecure. You don't have to be full of regret because of mistakes you made. You don't have to earn anything because you already are something. You're the beloved of God. You don't need anything else to give you significance, not that relationship you were hoping for, not that career success that you were after, not that problem that's persistent in your life to go away. You don't need any of that stuff because already right now in this moment, you are more loved than you could ever imagine Because the God of the universe thought so much of you that he came to earth and he suffered and he died for your stupid sins and for my stupid sins. What are you trying to earn that you don't already have with that God? I think losing our life means that we learn to stop playing this search for significance game that we humans are so obsessed with, and we embrace our identity as an actual fact that we are the beloved of God. Not just that, this follows quickly after it. I think if Jesus is actually God, then it means this, 
that other people matter more than you could ever dream. Other people matter more than you could ever dream. And losing your life means orienting your life around loving others. That's what it means. You know all that stuff I just said about you and how loved you are? It's true of them too, whoever them is. Here's the thing though, none of them really know it. They're out there trying to prove themselves, trying to chase happiness, chase pleasure, or trying to earn some sense of worth that would make them feel okay inside, trying to hang on to everything about their life so that they could have a life that feels like enough to them and they have no idea what you know. That they're already more loved than they could ever imagine. And your love, when it reflects Jesus' love in that way, it's not just like a morally good thing to love other people, but no, it is redemptive. It is restorative. That is what you carry inside of you. Would you just consider that whatever agenda that you have, if, if this stuff about Jesus is true, it's not as important as love, right? That's the agenda. And losing your life, it means giving that agenda up, whatever you're carrying, because people matter more. Lastly, I'd say this. If Jesus is actually God, uh, then that means this. His kingdom has actually come to earth as it is in heaven. It actually has. It's here. It's among us. And losing your life means leveraging everything you've got for his kingdom. Because if that kingdom actually exists, I mean, is there anything more important than announcing it or demonstrating or giving people on this earth a little bit of a taste of what it is, this kingdom of grace and forgiveness where things are redeemed and made right for all eternity? I mean, if it's true, isn't that our life mission right now? What are we working on that's better than that? Or what are we working on that would ever hope to compare to being an agent for the kingdom of God. And I think losing our life means that we stop thinking of kingdom work as like this side hobby, and it becomes the all-consuming mission of our life, if it's all true. What would your life look like if Jesus was who he said he is? You know, this, this question, Mark, is leading us to... Um, It's meant to free us. It's meant to empower us to go out. It's meant to change us. Let me tell one story in closing here. Uh, so last week in Latin America, um, I met these guys, these five guys that are a part of the team. I mean, these are guys, they're living as if it's true. Um, I mean, just their lives embody this sort of faith. Um, but personally, for me on this trip, I had a real interesting moment um, the night before that we were going to go out into some brothels and do some investigations, um, which, you know, is a hard thing. You got to lean into that. And um, I, I was asleep and I had this really just horrific dream about what we were about to go do. Um, and the details aren't really important, but it woke me up at like 2.30 in the morning and I just like sat up straight in bed and my mind was cranking and I don't know if you ever had that experience. I was disoriented and, um, you know, I could hear the sounds of the city outside of my hotel room um, and I could hear Latin music because for some reason in Latin America, there's always Latin music. I don't know why that is. It's just always there. Um, 
but it, like now because of the dream, it sounded sinister and, you know, it was just fearful because of this nightmare. I'll say this, that's not super abnormal. I think it, like when you do that sort of work, there's obviously spiritual warfare and then you see traumatic stuff and so your mind has to kind of work through that. And so uh, having bad dreams is a part of that. But in this case, um, I woke up middle of the night and I just, I, my heart was just full of this sense of dread from this dream. And my head is filling with all these fears and all these questions are crowding my mind. Questions like, what are you doing down here? John, I mean, who do you think you are? You're a pastor. Why did you think this was a good idea? You're going to die in a Latin American brothel. You're going to leave your wife and your kids all alone because you thought this was a good idea. You thought Jesus asked you to do this sort of thing. How do you even know? It's not like he sent you an email saying, go do this. How do you even know that he asked you to do this? How do you even know he's real? All those questions were in my head. I don't know. Maybe you don't think that way. But uh, sometimes I hear that stuff when I'm seeking to follow Jesus. It just kind of crowds into my mind. Uh, Maybe one day I'll grow out of that and become so spiritual that those fears never fill my head. But I doubt that. You know, there's just, there's something about following Jesus that just always sounds like a bad idea to our head and to our heart. And I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if that's not what Peter was feeling. Like he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. I really want to follow you. And then Jesus is like, great, let me tell you the plan. And just Peter's head and his heart just, they couldn't figure this out. It just was fear was what he felt. And so he just said, no, not that. It makes no sense. And I relate to that. I don't, I don't know if you do. Um, but there I was in my bed. You know, 2.30 a.m., heart full of fear, questioning everything like we do. God brought to mind this, like, really simple question. I felt like he asked in some way, but what if it's true? All this stuff about Jesus. What if it's true? You know, what quieted my heart that night and what gave me the courage to get up the next day, step in and do the hard thing that I felt like Jesus had called me to was just this really simple realization. If he really is who he said he is, then the riskiest, the most stupid, and the most foolish thing would be to play it safe. Would be to try to hang on to my life. And it was just this simple belief that, hey, it's what you say to a child, no, Jesus, it really is God. That really is true. And it was just that simple belief that freed me from fear and that empowered me to follow him. I'm not saying you should go into brothels. You have your own thing. It's hard enough, you know, do your own thing. But um, it's worth noting, whenever we get close to that thing that Jesus has called us to, there is fear. And you feel that fear like, I may not make it through this thing. That's often a good sign that it might be the sort of thing that this Messiah would ask of you is when you feel that fear. Because what he says is stepping into what God has asked, it's gonna feel like losing your life. 
like taking up your cross. And I think the only way we do that, the only way it makes sense, is to cling to the answer of the simple question, who do you say he is? To cling to the belief that he is in fact God, he is in fact everything that he said he was, and if that is true, then the riskiest and the most foolish thing in the world is to let fear talk us into playing it safe and hanging on to our life. You know, we know this, and we say this a lot. Jesus, he is the sort of Messiah who has given everything for you. But we also need to have this said. He is the sort of Messiah who asks everything from you. And when you think about it, honestly, is that not the only Messiah worth following? Is one who would ask for everything. Do you believe that he is who he said he is? If you've never put faith in him, I, now I, it's worth it. I just encourage you to do it. It's simple, simple prayer. It's a simple prayer of Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. I receive your forgiveness. I want to follow you. I want to step into that life. We'd love for you to join us in that here. If you are already following him, do not be afraid. He is who he said he is. Risk it all. Risk it all. Lose your life. It's all true. You know, this table here, it represents um, a great part of our faith, right? That he lost his life for us, that he gave everything for us. And what this represents is really kind of mind-blowing, that the God, like the only God that exists, this being so far above us, came and died because he wanted you in his life. It represents our collective belief that that is Jesus, that he is who he said he was. And because we believe that, our lives could never be the same. I want to invite you to the table. We're going to get the elements um, and then go back to our seats. And then I want us to take it all together after a song of worship here. Um, so would you come forward and get the bread and get the cup? And let's worship. Let's worship.